Welcome back to episode two of this three-part series on automated vehicles. My name is Josh Hughes and I'm a partner in the complex injury department here at BBK. I'm very pleased to say that for this episode, we've managed to ensnare two guests that really are at the forefront of autonomous vehicles or self-driving in the UK. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Alex Glassbrook, barrister and AV lawyer at Temple Garden Chambers here in London. Notably, Alex wrote the first British book on automated and electric vehicle law, and if that wasn't enough, is also an honorary senior research fellow in road transport law at the Imperial College London. Secondly, um, we'd like to welcome Nick Reed. Uh, Nick is the founder of Reed Mobility, an independent expert consultancy for all things future mobility. Nick is also a columnist and in recent times was appointed the National Highway's first ever Chief Road Safety Advisor. So not to get too philosophical too early on, but I wonder whether we as a society should be pursuing this technology given the investment required, the complexity that you've already referred to and the safety risks. Because I think it's fair to say that the idea of self-driving is not for everyone's taste. So I don't know, um, perhaps Alex, you have any comments on that and why you think it perhaps should or shouldn't be? I, th I think it's a very pertinent question. I mean, in a, in a different, slightly different application of AI, of course, you know, people are now are talking very seriously about ChatGPT and the impact of ChatGPT in various contexts. I, as lawyers, I suspect, and a few of us are now aware of the uh, story coming out of New York of a lawyer who apparently realizing what they were doing because um, they seem to have asked ChatGPT whether a case they were citing was genuine or not, used ChatGPT in the course of uh, written arguments to a court. And it was um, subsequently shown that what ChatGPT had done was produced something that looked completely plausible, but was totally without reality. It was citing cases that simply didn't exist. And of course, that was spotted by the other side and consequences follow. The automotive context is a little bit different, but it raises no less urgent questions. And in fact, because it involves physical safety of people traveling at speed, it, it raises far more urgent questions, arguably. My perspective is, I think, because I've been writing about this for a while and researching it and looking, you know, into the historical context of laws and why we have laws, one of the very striking themes I've found is how many of these questions have appeared previously in the different setting of, of uh, the invention of the motor car and the internal combustion engine. And I've been particularly struck that when I read magazine articles from the early 1900s and the 1920s, the sort of things that are said could be translated into modern concerns about chat GPT or about driverless vehicles. Uh, yeah. Part of the challenge of writing the book is deciding what not to quote because <laughs> you simply, you could endlessly quote this stuff. But I'm, uh, one passage I have in mind, which I can't quote verbatim, but was essentially making, it was from the early 1900s from an American automotive magazine saying uh, tractionless vehicles um, aren't uh, quite ready technology. They're not ready for deployment, but it's clear they're going to change the world. And engineers all over the country are grappling with the problems. Now, you could 
translate that very readily into the current state of automotive tech and level four and level five for general use, as Nick has described it. So I think, I think a lot of these points are like the invention of the motor car. A lot of these points are very dissimilar to the invention of the motor car because what we're talking about now is a machinery which in many ways is mechanical. I mean, you know, servers operate on vast amounts of power, generate a lot of heat and other energy use. There are broader implications of this. So a lot of it is mechanical, but there are aspects of this that are about miniaturized electronics that are capable of taking very, very sophisticated decisions, multifactorial, very sophisticated decisions that we are simply not used to delegating to machines. And that has some quite profound effects. I mean, for one thing, I think the civil standard of care for driving is going to have to adapt in some way or other to the use of advanced driver assistance and automated systems. To my mind, I think that's one one of the very key questions. I think, for me, if I I pick up there in safety, you mentioned um, my my work as a, a trustee for brake, previous work for, for TRL, you know, that, that road safety element is is written through me um, completely. And I see self-driving technology as one of the tools. Not, no, it's not necessarily everything, but it's one of the tools we can use to actually to, to transform the, the road safety landscape. Um, but if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, that would have been my focus. I, I think now I see the prosperity picture the, the fundamental role that transport plays in society achieving prosperity whether that's your work education social engagement health um and the potential for self-driving technologies to transform the way mobility is delivered for communities for society uh, more broadly is has massive potential and you know whilst i think Safety is the number one reason for deploying the technology. We should make sure as we regulate its deployment, we're mindful of that societal transformation that it could help us achieve. Sure. And that would be perhaps those who are unable to drive the conventional motor vehicle, perhaps having access um, to to AVs and connected vehicles um, to access society in in an easier way. And those who aren't served well by existing public transport services, maybe through self-driving technology, um, you can offer different types of transport services that enable them to get to school, to get to hospital, to get to jobs that they otherwise wouldn't be able to uh, and not have to depend on ownership of a private car. That's the long-term vision. It's, it's some way off yet. The other thing I'm, I'm mindful of now is that tech isn't always the answer, right? And often this transformation in mobility will come from better use of bikes or e-bikes or e-cargo bikes or scooters or whatever it might be. So just being mindful of that broader picture of the way mobility, micro-mobility, mini-mobility, as it's being termed, is emerging. Uh, and ha- that has some of the answers that we might be seeking. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps e-scooters are for another day. Uh, well, I mean, just coming, you know, as exactly as Nick says, I mean, I think a combination of the use of new tech with elegant, workable solutions is, and I've been, I find it quite striking just on a sort of visual thing. When I started 
writing a lot on this subject, I used to think, well, will the test of this be, can you look down a street and not see cars everywhere? Because at the moment, our streets are dominated by vehicles, really everywhere in the country. There are vehicles which are mainly parked. There are usually more stationary cars than there are moving cars. Um, that's something that I wondered whether that might change. One thing I've been particularly uh, noticing over the last few years, and perhaps even more recently that is, than that, is the success of e-bikes, particularly in urban settings. And the, I mean, I cycle to work in central London, and and uh, the the route I cycled down benefited from a big cycle lane. So after many years of cycling down what felt like a motorway, <laughs> I was on a cycle lane. But one of the interesting things that then happened was the proliferation of new types of vehicle. Um, I'm a fairly slow cyclist, so I think I've been overtaken by practically everything from sort of motorized skateboards to e-scooters, e-bikes, unicycles, etc., etc. I think the expansion of rental e-bikes is really significant. I think that that tells us something about the combination between connected vehicles and fairly old-fashioned 19th century tech because the combination of a bike, a battery that can make it slightly swifter and easier to use, and it being readily accessible because it's dockless and mobile tech can locate it very quickly. I think that's really transforming yeah. habits. Yeah. And, and the potential for self-driving vehicles to make people feel more comfortable to mm. use those active travel modes in the presence yeah. Yeah. of those vehicles, yeah. which are more predictable, which presumably would always be able to take them 360-degree view around the vehicle. Perhaps that's another element that would encourage people uh, yes. private vehicles. Yeah. I mean, personally, uh, the, the reason I, I wouldn't cycle in, in central London is exactly that, just the unpredictability of, of drivers on the, on the road and the kind of hierarchy of vulnerability that we see in the highway code. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, Nick, I, I wanted to ask you about how we, we ensure that the cap, we, we capture society's perspective on the introduction of self-driving technology. I know that's the topic that you're passionate about. Yeah, I was fortunate to win some uh, funding from the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund. They had a, a competition to celebrate what would have been the 150th birthday of the founder, William Rhys Jeffries, someone who was passionate about road safety and about using roads in the way that is of benefit to society. And the competition was about um, how would we be using our roads 50 years from now, so on, in his 200th year. Um, and my vision was about how we ensure that these emerging technologies, AI-based, including automated driving, how we make sure that society's views, society's perspectives on those technologies are part of the way in which they're introduced. I'd done, uh, following on from the work for the European Commission, we'd looked at the extent to which automated vehicles should be required to comply with the law, to comply with the rules of the road. And there might be situations where non-compliance delivers the best safety outcome. And following on from that, we proposed that there was a requirement for ethical goal functions to govern self-driving vehicle behaviour. 
And those were an attempt to capture what society expects from the way automated vehicles should behave. Because programming in explicitly the way in which an automated vehicle might apply discretion in the way a human driver might um, is incredibly difficult. And even if you could train an AI on all of the different situations it might encounter, it still wouldn't derive the ethical principles that sit behind sure. the way the vehicle would operate. So we, we talked about these ethical goal functions, but in our paper didn't describe the way in which we should capture those. So the funding from the, the Reese Jeffries Road Fund enabled me to start that work. So we held, um, we distributed a, a survey, 2,000 respondents to the survey, um, and had a series of workshops at the Smart Mobility Living Lab in Woolwich, where we asked people what their priorities would be, what, what did they expect from the way self-driving vehicles should operate. Um, and we found that the most important factor, and it has many different dimensions, was trust. They needed to be able to trust they would operate safely, that they would do the things that they would expect them to do. Interestingly, there was a, an acceptance that there would still be collisions, yeah. that they wouldn't be completely infallible. But as long as there was a mechanism for compensation, that there was transparency around what had happened, and there was a, a process to learn from an incident, make sure it never happened again, there was acceptance that that, that would be a, a, a successful way to proceed. So yeah, that, that, that was the work we've done to date. What we did find, though, is that it's very difficult to ensure people understand this technology when you describe it to them, especially in the survey, but even in the workshop where you can take more time to explain exactly what it is you're describing, whether people genuinely had an equal level of understanding of what the technology would do, how it would be operating in the real world was, I'm not sure how well we could do that. So I think what we need to do is follow that with more work, perhaps using virtual reality to be able to immerse people in environments and expose them to different ways in which an automated vehicle might behave and then ask them, you know, what was what you've just seen acceptable? And use that to start to develop some of the thresholds for automated driving. And then regulators, automated vehicle developers can use those thresholds to show this is, this is how we're meeting the public's expectations. Brilliant. That's really exciting stuff. And if I may um, turn to our focus, rather turn our focus to the civil law in respect of, of AVs, and selfishly, if I may, with a particular focus on personal injury, um, Nick, you've mentioned how important it is that people accept that they're not infallible, and, and on the basis that they aren't um, infallible, that when injuries do occur involving um, self-driving, that there's a mechanism, a straightforward mechanism um, for claimants to obtain compensation. Um, so if I can reintroduce you, Alex, on this on this point, you've mentioned that we eagerly await the draft of the transport bill and that we'll, we understand will build upon the foundations of the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act in 2018. But perhaps you could summarise where we are in terms of the legislative and regulatory uh, framework for AVs. Yeah, so... An automated vehicle is is a is a product. It's something that's been manufactured, and so if the law had not been altered at all in relation to automated vehicles, then in very broad terms, what somebody would have to prove if they were injured by an automated vehicle is that there was a defect in that vehicle. There was something wrong with it that the law allowed the recovery of damages for. And that is uh, 
a complicated area of law because it is the product of a great many areas of law. And it's a problem, it's a knotty problem that legal academics and policymakers and legislators have been trying to solve for decades all over the world. So what happened in this country is in 2018, a law that was put onto the statute book, which was part one of the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act 2018, which builds a shortcut over all of that complexity. And it builds that shortcut for a person who's injured or who suffers property damage, certain types of property damage, because of a road traffic accident caused by an automated vehicle when driving itself. And essentially what it does is it creates uh, a claim directly against the motor insurer of that vehicle or against one of the bodies or organisations that's allowed to use a vehicle on public roads without insurance and so from the claimant's perspective they do not have to worry about the huge complexity of products law that doesn't mean that products law is completely winked out of existence in this field what it does mean is that it becomes the responsibility of the insurance company that has to pay out to the victim or of the health trust or whichever permitted uninsured body there is it becomes their responsibility to assess the merits of bringing a claim in product liability as we might broadly call it so they shoulder the difficult burden and so it's a fairly simple approach it's those with the broadest shoulders financially the insurance companies and public bodies who uh, take on that task if they wish to but the individual injured claimant does not have to take on that task. And so that's the important patch, as I referred to it in, in British uh, liability and insurance law. Yeah. Um, the unanswered questions in civil liability are really questions that attach mainly to the insurance companies and, and to the permitted uninsured organisations. Uh, but there are a couple of exceptions to that. Uh, one of the exceptions is, as at the moment, we don't know what the provision is if somebody is hit, injured, damaged, suffers property damage because of an uninsured automated vehicle. Now, the lack of insurance of an AV might seem unlikely because one suspects that for reasons of connectivity and technology, it would be quite difficult to... There would be ways of technically, one hopes, barring use of an uninsured vehicle, essentially by immobilising it. But right. that's, not, yeah. that's not my field, so mm -hmm. that's, that's for the technicians to work out. The second exception is that a claimant under the Automated Electric Vehicles Act uh, is in some circumstances uh, exempted or prevented from, uh, from recovering compensation. I won't go into all of the detail of those circumstances, but it's essentially if they uh, knowingly or recklessly have uh, failed to keep the vehicle software up to date and particularly the vehicle's safety-critical software. 
Now, that is an exception that I suspect is going to have to work its way through the courts in test cases because the experience of motor insurance law since 1930 is that uh, the devil is in the detail and the devil is particularly in the detail of exemptions. So the motor insurer may be able to invalidate indemnity? Yes, that is the, uh, that is the only ground of invalidation in an automated and electric vehicles case under the Act. Um, but how that interacts with the exemptions under the Road Traffic Act is an unanswered question. And that brings us to the end of part two of our three-part series on automated vehicles. Please join us next time for the third and final instalment. Thanks so much for listening. You can catch the BBK free speech podcast on all listening platforms. Goodbye. Goodbye.